All right, thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back to most of you I know, but uh, if you're visiting today for the first time, welcome to you especially. Glad you guys are with us for one of our worship services or gatherings, we say sometimes. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here with us. Uh, we are right now in a, in a series. Um, we're actually wrapping up today. It's been a six-week series uh, since, I guess, it would have been um, mid-September or so, but uh, wrapping up today uh, in a series called Gospel Sexuality, or more the, the hodgepodge title has been Sex, Gender, and Marriage, and the Gospel, uh, because we've been covering so many things kind of related to these, to sexuality uh, more broadly, and, um, but also to gender and marriage and singleness, and last week, homosexuality, and before that, what exactly is sexual sin? Uh, it's, uh, it's a confusing thing in some regards, culturally, even kind of biblically in some capacity, but less so. Just where our culture is at with that, it's just good to kind of call things just what they are and kind of uh, collectively repent and believe the gospel afresh and talk about how to kill sin in general. So Spence did a great job at that a couple of weeks ago. Um, so just a, just a bunch of things that we've been wanting to talk about for a while, and we do do this uh, in as much as the, the scriptures kind of allow for it in, in the middle of a series on, on a particular biblical book. Uh, but topically, we don't do it like, you know, every three months or something. It's kind of a special thing that we felt uh, God leading us to for a little while now. So, um, so today we're going to wrap up and talk about, um, and, and Peter was sort of talking about it, um, church polity or church governance and gender and how those things kind of fit together. Uh, I think I mentioned last week, kind of prepared you guys for this a little bit and meant, at least mentioned it was coming. And so, um, so a few things that, uh, and I think I even mentioned this last week as well in regards to um, homosexuality because it might just be a question in your minds like why are we doing this? And I think my clicker is maybe officially dead. Did you do that, Dave, or is that me? Is that me? Okay. So it might be a weird clicking day. And there's no confidence screen, so this will be kind of a weird, uh, of a sore neck after we uh, finish here today. But anyway, uh, so why are we doing this? Uh, and some of the same things actually, um, oh, thanks, Kurt. Maybe that's it right there. We will see. Gold star for you, Kurt. We'll pay you extra for that which is not saying a lot because we don't pay you anything. Um, but, okay, so, so why are we doing this? Uh, first, like I said last week, in, in connection with homosexuality, but I think even more this week. The Bible talks about this. Uh, a decent amount, actually. And so because of this, at some point, speaking especially to you that, uh, who are Christians here, but even if you're not, you're maybe reading the Bible for the first time, or you have a friend or someone who's not a Christian yet ask you about these things. At some point, pretty much every single one of you is going to need to come to terms with this issue because it's in the Bible quite a bit. And so if you haven't already, uh, maybe this is your first time you're doing this, and that's great. Uh, we, can, we can talk about this today. Uh, second, God cares about this, and so should we. Even though it's not the bullseye of the faith, uh, it, God cares. And so it should be said here, too, that Christians, we think, um, speaking for our leaders here, can charitably disagree on this issue. Uh, the, the world now says, culture now says, and this is a change from where I think humanity has been for like ever. Uh, things are just different now. The, the world now says, if you disagree with me, you hate me. Right? That's kind of where we're at now. If you disagree, that means you hate. Uh, but we can do better than that. And again, humanity has for most of history, but I think especially in the church, we can actually disagree and love each other. Now, that's possible because of the gospel. And so... Um, so that needs to be said as well, kind of off the cuff. I'll, I'll say some more about that later on. Uh, but many of you, third, this is the third kind of aside here, or answer to why we're doing this. Many of you have asked us about this, and it's a great question. If you've had this question before, um, because of your experience in 
the church or because of some particular biblical passage you're reading, it's a great question. How does gender factor into church leadership, or does it at all? Um, you know, culturally, equality is everything. And so when, when we read the Bible, kind of slightly even, just push back on that idea a little bit, that there's actually something more important than equality, uh, it can feel uncomfortable for us. And so we're, we're 21st century Americans, and that's fine to have that as a part of our, like, identity. But even more than that, we're speaking to Christians here. We're biblicists, and we're Christians. And so, but weighing that sometimes just is delicate. All right, and then fourth, uh, we care about truth, unity, and love here. Um, so I'm speaking for Hiawatha and our leaders when I say that. We care about truth, we care about unity, and we care about love. And it's harder to achieve those things when you're silent on matters like this. And so thinking, uh, as a church, thinking we want unity here, and so we won't talk about contentious matters in the Bible, that almost always backfires. You know, thinking, well, we want unity, so we won't talk about things that are controversial in the Bible. That almost always backfires because they're still there. And at some point, someone's going to read it and say, well, why don't you guys talk about this? Or what does this mean? Um, and so it almost always backfires, or it creates a very watered-down, biblically illiterate, fearful, and cowardly church to not talk about these things. Some of you maybe have had that experience um, in whatever setting, and we just don't want to be that church. And so we're, um, we're going to talk about this stuff. All right, so to, just to raise the issue here, in case it wasn't clear so far, this is the big question. Why does the Bible seem to teach that only called and qualified men are to fill the office of overseer or pastor uh, or elder. Those are all kind of synonymous terms. Overseer, bishop, pastor, elder. Why are only called and qualified men to fill that role in the local church? In other words, why are women uh, biblically excluded from this role? And so a, a couple of things uh, here, just about women in leadership broadly, that um, I'll just spin off this here for a couple of seconds. These aren't really qualifications, they're more just a few things to say. That, um, and we've talked about this in this series so far, so um, no time to go back into it deeply, um, but to touch on a couple of things here. So first is, I know this is a sensitive topic for many of you. Uh, a lot of the stuff we talked about in this series has been. I, I've talked to a lot of you about this personally. I, I, I appreciate that, actually. We love hearing your stories, and even if you disagree with us, we, we'd rather like, talk to you about it than just kind of you know, hear that you're concerned and never have a conversation. So I've talked to many of you about it. We actually think here it's a huge win for us as a church where we can disagree and love each other. That's a huge win. And for a world that just, you know, can't stop talking and disagreeing and being inflammatory with things and equating hate with disagreement, we think that's a huge witness to the world, that there's something bigger than this issue, and it's Jesus. And so if we major on that, we can disagree on minors and still have a lot of unity. And so we think it's a huge win for us as, as a community. But, but going back to the sensitivity issue, it's possible, probably likely actually, that many of you, or some of you at least, were hurt by male leadership in the church before, men or women. Or even just the notion itself that there's something in the, in the Bible that women are kept from might just sound to you like the most unfair or even bigoted, culturally speaking, thing you can think of. And so if that's you, just hang with me. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this. I'm speaking for our overseers today and other people here share our view in the church, but not all, and that's fine. Um, this is an open-handed thing here, not our bullseye. But that said, let me just invite you to try to keep an open mind uh, during this time. I'm, I'm guessing the majority of you will probably hear something new today about what it actually means to be a pastor or overseer. 
uh, whether you've read this stuff or not, or going off of experience, that you'll hear, hear something new, and maybe even about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which relates to it, even if you still end up disagreeing. All right, and so the, the second thing about women in leadership here is this is about overseership exclusively, or pastorship exclusively. So what I mean by overseers are pastors who lead spiritually, who protect theology, and who preach and pray and die for the church. I'll define it a little bit more broadly later on, but that's what I mean by pastors just to start here today. In other words, this is not about teaching or leadership, broadly speaking. The Bible celebrates women in leadership all over the stinking place, and so, and so do we, theologically and practically. And we actually have right now in our church, we, um, at least just currently, it's not always been the case, but um, currently we have 50-50 uh, male-to-female ratio on staff right now at Hiawatha, which is really cool. It's a pretty big deal. It means that, it, in the, actually, if you add Laura Rhinus to that, who's our intern, it tips in favor of women. So um, not to make Laura feel like she's not important, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, interns are kind of staff, but kind of not. That's why I say it that way. But anyway, um, but that means that in the day-to-day, women are helping to move our mission forward and shape our culture here just as much as men. And it's more staff. It's about volunteers and lay leadership um, as well, like in our band and our community groups and leading ministries. Many of you are part of that. We need both genders. Uh, Together, we demonstrate the image of God and pool our unique gifts together to advance God's kingdom in a way that we couldn't uh, without each other. And that's what we really want here, kind of across genders. We want all of our men to say, we need women here, or we're extremely unhealthy as a church. And we just aren't really a church because we're not actually the full image of God. And we want our women to say, we need men to be healthy in the church. You know, and that, those, even those statements themselves to men or women can be difficult to say, but we think as Christians, we need to affirm them. We have to say that. Uh, there's just nothing in the Bible that would kind of uh, preclude the idea or lead us in the other direction. And so we need each other just like we need God. All right, so, so we need both genders, and that, that just needs to be. That was, there was another sermon on that weeks ago that um, if you want more on that, actually the first one I think, we talked about creation and gender. That's just a few things to remind you of. All right, and then, then the last thing here is, uh, with all that said, though, the Bible still says and shows that only called and qualified men should serve as overseers. And it's our conviction that the reason God commands this is not an outdated cultural rule, nor does it have to do with women's incompetence, as some would say, but rather it's due to Jesus. Jesus is the reason for this. His gospel is the reason for this. It's about something and someone bigger than gender, bigger than pastoring, bigger than the idea of leading. It's about God getting more fame and his gospel being put more on display. So we'll, I'll come back to that, but just by way of leading into this, hear that and look for that as I'm preaching, because if it's just about rules, we're missing the point. There's something beautiful here about Christ that, that we need to see as well. And that's how this is going to hopefully preach to us too, and not just teach through terms and definitions. This is a sermon, not a class. So the, the, the plan here then is to talk about the what and the why for the rest of our time. So the what behind male overseership, as the Bible teaches, and then the why behind it. Why does it say it? So the what being the explicit kind of face value arguments for it. I'll teach through some things, if you're new to this especially, or to remind you, talk through some really problematic, I guess is maybe the wrong word, but difficult verses and passages in the Bible on this that are just tough. We'll uh, dive, dive deep into those. And then the why, which is even more important, and the why will get us to Jesus all the more uh, directly. So that's basically where we're going today. So let's dive in. 
Um, first of all, uh, or I forgot the, oh, that was my fault. Okay. So first of all, the what? The what behind male uh, overseership? So um, to start here, just have four quick things. I'll list them out on, on these slides here. So first, though we do have examples of, of female prophets and even queens, so think Esther in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, deacons and teachers and leaders, we never see any, any examples of female priests in the Old Testament or the counterpart to priests in the New Testament, um, apostles, elders, bishops, and overseers. And so just kind of at face value, we see that just going off of what the Bible is showing us, there's not one single example of a female priest in the Old Testament. And then the Bible connects Old Te- uh, New Testament um, apostles, but then overseers or pastors with priests in the Old Testament. And we never see an example of uh, women serving in that role in the New Testament either. And so if you want more on the connection there, read 1 Corinthians 9. Paul makes a direct connection between priests and elders. Um, we're not Catholic either here, but still there's kind of a similar uh, sense to, to the role. All right, so second, um, Jesus was a man, which is not a small thing. I feel like I could talk for an hour just on that. Uh, but Jesus, when God decided to become human, he didn't flip a coin. He became masculine. He became a man uh, for all these reasons we're going to talk about the rest of today. But the fact that he's a man is, is important uh, because he's a groom. He's not a bride. He's like a bridegroom, spiritually speaking. And that factors into all this stuff that we're going to talk about today. But also... Uh, Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples, who then became apostles, who then became the first overseers, according to Acts chapter 6. So it's a progression from disciple to apostle, uh, and then to like overseer pastor types in Acts 6. Not going to go into that today in too much depth, but that's the progression, which is actually a really strong argument for exclusively male overseer or overseers and overseer teams. Because Jesus was all about pushing back against man-made traditions. So if you don't know this about Jesus, he loved pushing back and challenging man-made traditions. And so the argument that Jesus was just conforming to first century Jewish man-made traditions when he chose 12 men doesn't hold any water. If he wanted to, he would have chose six men and six women in the name of equality. And he would have just done it. He didn't fear men. He did not, um, and he spoke against Jewish tradition all the time. He was the new wine, he says, that he said, you need, you need to prepare your hearts, uh, Jewish people, for the new wine that I am. May your hearts be new wineskins to accept the new challenging to your ways of doing things, uh, systems that I'm going to uh, bring into the world. Um, and so he's clearly unafraid then. He's the coming new thing. He's clearly unafraid to change things up in his ministry, plus He was radical in a good way and kind and generous in his treatment of women as well. And it offended many of the the religious men in the first century. So again, all that together, this means that the 12 men must have been a standard, not a concession. It must have been a standard and not a concession. Jesus was not about conceding, like, oh, this is going to be offensive, so I can't do it. Or the ideal would be to have six men, six women, but it just, you know, I'm seeker-sensitive Jesus, and so I, I can't do that. Like, he, he never talked that way. And so if he wanted to do it, he would have, even at the cost of his life, right? He, he, he lost his life for breaking the Sabbath. He lost his life for calling himself God and many other things as well. All, of course, according to plan, but, um, but he, he would have done this. And the fact that he didn't is an extremely strong argument for exclusively male overseers. All right, and then a couple of quick things initially from the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3, 2, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who 
remained in Ephesus after Paul planted that church as kind of the pastor of the Ephesians church. And Paul writes back and says, basically, this is how you pastor. And so his letter to him um, is full of these instructions on what elders uh, are or should be kind of qualification-wise and then what deacons should be qualification-wise and how to lead in these different very specific ways, actually, which is it's a great book. You should read it if you haven't already. Um, but 1 Timothy 3, 2 says, the overseer must be the husband of one wife, then in verse 4, he must manage his own family well. And so two quick things here. Notice that overseer is the husband of one wife. It's a, it's a, a, a man-centered thing. He should be a husband. Um, or if, he, if he's not married, then um, pure. But if he's married, then the husband of one wife. So kind of single-minded or eyed, single-eyed, um, pure sexually or, or, um, or, or, or whatnot. So, and then, so we see the male, the male pronoun, so the mention of wife there, but then the male pronoun is used here all throughout 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, I think, is that whole paragraph. But all throughout that paragraph, the male pronouns used too in the Greek. Uh, so he, uh, he must do this, or he must be like this, or he must manage his own uh, family uh, well. We'll actually come back to that latter part to make a different argument from it here in a little bit. Complimentary one, but a different one. So, all right, so we notice that uh, it just assumes that overseers will be, will be men here. Then the paragraph before this is one of the um, more difficult verses that Paul ever writes. And so Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 13, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam and Eve were the first two human beings ever created in Genesis uh, 2. Adam first and then Eve uh, second. So um, he's kind of grounding his argument back there, and I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to that. All right, so th- this is, uh, and if, if you've never read the Bible before, and you're seeing this, you'll be like, what in the world? This is kind of one of those what was Paul thinking moments. Um, but let's talk about this. This is a difficult verse. Let's dive in. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 11 or 14, I forget which, chap- which chapter it is, but later in the book of 1 Corinthians 2, so it comes up one other time. But I do not permit a woman to teach, but to have that kind of authority over a man in a church setting. So remember, he's writing to Timothy about church and kind of gathering with churches, how church life should kind of ha- look governance-wise, and it's right before all this stuff on uh, eldership, remember. So there's no chapter breaks in the original uh, Greek texts, and so that, that big number three you have, uh, right after this chapter, this chapter three, and then it goes into that whole other thing that we just kind of looked at. That's not there. It's just kind of one kind of stream of thought or, or flow of thought. And so it's all in context. He's talking about eldership and, and everything. So, so a few things here, and what I want to do is use some other parts of the Bible, some commonsensical things, but also other ways that Paul writes um, that kind of qualify this a bit and interpret this, uh, this one here, but still... Um, allow it to speak in the way that, um, that, that I think God intends it. All right, so the first thing is, just to affirm, um, this is really important context. Paul is um, the, the epitome of a non-misogynist. He is, he is, if you know anything about him, if you, if you kind of read his letters, especially the ends of the letters, when he, he talks about these tons of really, but, but several named female friends that he has in ministry, including Priscilla, we traveled with at one point as they partnered in ministry together. Elsewhere, he encourages women, he celebrates them, he thanks God for them, and he encourages the churches he's writing to, uh, and there are many men in those churches, to receive from these women ministerially. And so, if he was a misogynist, he just wouldn't do that. And so, just look at how he writes, how he celebrates women uh, big time, how he partners with them, um, and 
liberates them really uh, to, be, to be women in the church and to build the church and to use their spirit-given gifts uh, to advance God's kingdom. And so with that background then, this, this helps us then to do a couple of things with 1 Timothy 2, so the verse on the top there. So with this background number one, this helps us do a couple of things with 1 Timothy 2.12. The first thing is to refute the often held belief that 1 Timothy 2 is only in the Bible because there were no learned or literate women in the first century. Priscilla, Paul's friend, who I already mentioned, in Acts 18, teaches a learned man, Apollos, so he can understand the Bible better. And so the idea here is that Paul knows, clearly, by name, of literate, learned, amazing women, and still writes 1 Timothy 2. You know, so in other words, Paul didn't mean in 1 Timothy 2, I'm only commanding this because there are no capable female teachers, Timothy, in your midst. He's not saying that. He's saying, I know of very capable, gifted female teachers, and I'm still commanding this. Because note that the argument isn't grounded in context. It's grounded in the created order. Adam first, and then Eve. There's something about being created first here that is reflected in a type of pastoral, spiritual authority in preaching and and in leading at the highest level That is at the heart of God here. All right, but with that said, though, on the other side of the coin, Paul can't mean quiet and teach in every sense of the words because, again, Priscilla and other named female prophets. And we we also see many of them listed in the Bible. But we also believe, and I think this is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 14, not everyone believes this, but we think that the gifts themselves, the spiritual gifts like prophecy and teaching, are genderless. So, They're not like um, sort of partial towards one or or the other gender. And prophecy and teaching are are two of the named ones in the Bible. All right, so that's maybe helpful, but also even more confusing, right? So there's still the question, well, what in the world does this mean then? What is he saying? This is what we think it means. Um, First, there's a reason, before you read this here, there's a reason that this verse is so close to the verses in 1 Timothy 3. I said that before, but understand that context is huge here. Paul is talking about eldership. He's talking to Timothy about what it means to pastor, what it means to identify other people to pastor with him in the church, and what their gatherings should look like. He wants order. He wants the gospel to be embodied. And so what we think here is when it comes to spiritual authority, many times in our view that's mixed with a type of authoritative preaching and teaching, that, and many other things as well, but that's a big piece, that that role is reserved for some men, not all, but some men who are called to it because of how it reflects the created order, Adam first, then Eve, according to Paul, which in turn then reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, according to the Bible, and his headship over and love for the church, and we are the second Eve. All right, if that's confusing, hang with me because I'm going to go into this in more depth here, but this is basically what we mean that as we kind of, you know, wade into the murky waters of 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, that this is basically what it means. It's about eldership, um, not about a a specific rule for women to be quiet in every circumstance. Obviously, it can't mean that because of his ministry, because of Priscilla, because of what the rest of the Bible shows and says. And even just kind of by common sense, you could say, though that's not really a super strong argument, but still, or as important as the biblical one, but, but still all that together, it can't mean some of those things, but it still can mean that God cares about order. 
He cares about the gospel being embodied. He cares about um, birth order, birth, uh, creation order, in a sense, here with, with Adam and Eve and how that points us to Jesus. And so off of that then, so kind of keep that in your mind as we move into more. These, these are some of the what arguments. There are many more. Uh, those are some of the big ones. Uh, but then we move more into the, the why, which is, which is next. So the why behind male overseership. All right, so just a few things here. First, I have two big things actually today, but I'll say several things about each of them. First is the church is a spiritual family. And so just pause right there for a second. When you think about how the Bible talks about the church, it says things like God is our, what? Father, and we are to each other brothers and sisters in the faith. And we are adopted into his family, right? Family language. We all dine at his table, like having a big family dinner every night, right? That's a family image. We are given an inheritance, right? Family language. The inheritance being salvation. All that is family language. Spiritually speaking, we are a family. And so the idea here is that some of the rules that apply to family also apply to church. Uh, And so... And that includes male husband-like leadership that reflects Christ's love for his bride. So I want to go back to that. If you haven't been here, this is a huge uh, kind of launch pad verse and, and to understanding marriage, but then also the, the church. And I'll, I'll get to that. But remember the gospel framework. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her or gave himself up for her. Husbands, do that. That's your job as a husband, to resemble Christ, Christian husbands, resemble Christ in how you Literally or metaphorically die every day and consider your wives better than you. Consider them better and more important than you, just like Christ did for us. And so it's a drama of the gospel, symbolically speaking. This is why marriage exists. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Marriage exists for the sake of Christ, for him, and to tell a story about what Jesus did for his church. That's why it exists. We didn't make it up. We don't have the luxury of changing the rules and the structures and all of that, even though we try really hard at that and we do it to our own peril. Uh, even though that happens, uh, it doesn't take away the fact that God designed it for, uh, for himself and for the gospel. So and then wives, your church figures. Wives, as the church submits to Christ, then so also you should admit to, submit to your own husbands in everything. Then he says this at the end in 32. This is a profound mystery. He's acknowledging this is difficult to understand, but what he's saying is it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. It's hard to understand. It's mystical but Christians should be mystical because we believe in a spiritual mystical God, a, a, a one who, solves, who is mysterious but who solves mysteries through his son. It, marriage, refers to Christ and the church, all right? And then so, then in 1 Timothy 3, 5, this is, this is all flowing from the first point up there that family and church are linked biblically. 1 Timothy 3, 5 says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you see how the Bible links being a husband and a father with being a pastor? If you can't be a husband and a father and care for and manage your household, how will you then do that in the household of God? How will you do that in the household of faith? Because there's so much link there, what Timothy should have been, should have been doing then, kind of per Paul's instructions, is looking for men, if they are married, who were laying down their lives for their wives and leading their kids to Jesus well and maintaining some semblance of order, even though that's 
all the parents in the room are like, what? It's like impossible to do sometimes, right? But um, not perfect, but some semblance of order. That, that was, that, that's an incredibly important part. And we look for this too, and we look for elders here um, to married elders, is that, is, is that part of it. So, so Paul says, overseers should be good husbands and fathers because of, of this connection. So in the church then, to link this together, overseers and pastors are husband-like, Christ-reflecting leaders who love and die for the rest of the church. Overseers and pastors are husband-like, Christ-reflecting leaders who love and die for the rest of the church. So if it helps to understand it this way, male headship in marriage and eldership isn't a sin. And so Jesus didn't die for it. Rather, he fulfilled it. All right, the Bible never says that, that male headship in, in marriage and in the church is a sin that Jesus came to remedy and to flip around. He never says that. It comes a million miles from it. Now, sinful forms of, of male uh, or any kind of like bad leadership or abusiveness or any of that, for sure, he came to die for that because that's sin. But Jesus didn't come at the core, though, to overturn and abolish in the name of equality all forms of hierarchy. And you may have heard this before. I, I've heard this from many people in my life, even in seminaries, and you know, very intelligent people write books on this stuff. That's one aspect or one view on the gospel that just isn't biblical. That's something that we are clearly, we're, we're, um, we're clear to denounce in this church because it's just unhelpful and it's untrue and it's unbiblical. It's just nowhere in the Bible. And so instead to see the fact that Jesus came to purify or to redeem or to fulfill the idea by himself being the church's head and being like a husband dying for his wife, the, the church. So all this is at the heart of God the Father. It's there in the beginning when Adam is formed first before Eve. It's fulfilled by the second Adam, Jesus, whose love is there before ours, whose grace was there before and in spite of our works. Husbands and male elders, when they're operating healthily, uh, can embody this gospel when they die for their wives and churches respectfully. And so what, what I want to do now is talk more about this dying idea. This is another, so the why behind it, one, the church is a spiritual family. The, the second big thing is overseers are watchmen. This is something you may have not heard before. Uh, the Greek word is episkopos. We get our word episcopal from it. Uh, it's a form of church polity and government, uh, like in the Episcopal Church, but it's also much more broad than that because it just means bishop or watchman, literally, to oversee, to oversee something, or see over it, like you're seeing from above it. And so here, I've just got a picture of kind of a classic idea of watchmen on the wall looking over the city. We'll just call this Hiawatha Church, and this is kind of like culture of the world maybe out here or something like that. All right, so this is, I think this is actually Peter Carlson. I don't know. I... <laughs> I don't know if it's, well, it's, we can't see his feet. If it was toe shoes, it would be Jesse, but, um, <laughs> but I think it's Peter, so. Okay, anyway, but this is just a great example of what, like a watchman, this is the idea behind, the biblical idea culturally and biblically behind what it means to be a pastor and an overseer. It means to be a watchman, like Hawkeye in the first Avengers movie, if you guys saw that. Remember how it says he's way up, perched up high, and it says, I see better from afar. He's being a watchman there. This is kind of like what pastors are, um, not literally, of course, but I mean, figuratively, it's what we do. We look from afar, we look for danger, we see better from a distance. It comes from, from this notion of standing on the wall of a walled city, 
But then the idea here is that, that watchmen were, they sounded the alarm, but they were the first, in, the first line of defense when danger came. And so in the same way, overseers are tasked with a responsibility to look out for spiritual danger, theological error, false teachers, wolves that want to devour the sheep that are Christians, as the Bible talks about, anything that's threatening the church, and then to fight back. The way we fight back, with the gospel itself, so speaking truth, preaching, teaching, being, being the mouthpiece of God, but also physical protection if there are people who are harming others. We've actually, we've literally had this conversation as overseers about, and this is just in the news, right? You guys hear about the synagogue that was shot up? It's a synagogue, I know, but people just died, you know, um, for, their, for their faith. Um, all around the world, I mean, right now, Christians are dying somewhere in the world just for being Christians. We, we don't, it's hard for us to feel this, but, I mean, 300 people a day is, is the stat that persecutedchurch.org puts out. Uh, it's an average, but it's a crazy amount of, of people daily. And so this is a big deal. But we've, as overseers, we've literally had this conversation, like, it probably won't happen because we're, op- we're serving and ministering and existing in a free country, but if someone charges in with an Uzi, we charge them, we take bullets for you guys because you are more important than us. It's more important that you live because we want to embody the gospel to you and we care about you guys. If there's a bomb threat, we're the last out. We're not going to push people out of the way, women and children, and say, wah, you know, and freak out. Like, it's bad leadership, right? And it's not embodying the gospel, but it actually may come to that. that that's not like outside of the realm of possibility. This actually could happen. We've actually had these conversations. We just want you guys to know that. So um, no one else stays in. Like you guys, I mean, this is, we charge the, the gunmen. Um, we search for bombs. We stay in. Um, anyway, st- stuff like that. There's actually a gas leak here. Um, there seemed like there was a gas leak a few months ago, and Tyler was here, I think, with the youth group, and I'm just like, get out, and I ran in here to s- smell it <laughs> and, call the, and call the guys because it's like I'd rather get blown up than Tyler, so whatever, than the youth group. But anyway, just as an example of that, like this actually, this kind of stuff, it, it's not like just theory, all right? So the way we fight back with the gospel, maybe physical protection, this could be someone in the church who's harming women, who's more of a predator. We'd expose that person because we actually care about our women here. And so that may happen. Uh, but, but also things like this. So I'm going to list out a few things here. We also protect, this is really important, we also protect by figuratively taking bullets as well. Whether that means spiritual attack, criticism, gossip, being gossiped about or slandered about, or whether it means that as overseers, we're just privy to so much pain right now at our church that few others are, and that in that we're absorbing it for the sake of others, and we're suffering anxiety over it, or whether it means long nights away from our families, up late praying and meeting to talk about how to care for the church, or whether it means making extremely unpopular decisions for the sake of Hiawatha, preaching the hard things and taking flack for it, we suffer so the church might not have to as much. If you look at uh, the life of Paul in the New Testament, how he wrote to his churches, he says primarily two things when he writes to like share his affection. He says, I love you and I'm suffering for you. He wanted them to know that he was suffering for them, not, not because he was proud, but because he wanted them to see Jesus in his life. There's tons to say more, more about that, but just look at his letters. I love you, churches, deeply, and I'm suffering for you daily. Suffering, physically and, and 
anxiety-wise as, as well. And so, in other words, hear this. There's more to say, but overseeing and pastoring is not just about teaching or managing. If it was, it would be harder to justify why women can't do that. Because women teach the Bible really well and lead and manage wonderfully. And we celebrate and empower women for that very purpose here. And all churches should. But it's more than that. It's about taking bullets over and over and over again and putting ourselves in harm's way. And taking bullets, this is our perspective, taking bullets is a distinctly masculine thing. Taking bullets is a distinctly masculine thing. Not that women can't at all or shouldn't, that obviously happens, and it's obviously not saying that non-elders don't suffer as Christians or suffer for people in the church, obviously not. But this is saying that men, and, and elders amongst men, but that men have primary responsibility to do this. Again, and this is I'm kind of joking about it before, but if you couples hear someone breaking into your house at night, that's not a coin flip between a husband and his wife to see who goes to check it out. You know, like flipping in, oh, sorry, honey, it's tails. You know, like three times in a row, yeah, it's not me, it's the coin, you know. I, it's not me, you should go. And then we kind of cozy up. That it's, it's our view that that would be sinful for the husband, not sinful for the wife, to go and do something that her deadbeat husband should have been doing. It's because she's not doing anything wrong. It's sinful for the husband to force her to do that in the name of equality. And so this is the connection I want to make. Like it would be wrong for us to ask wives to take bullets for husbands, so would it be wrong to ask women to take bullets for the church. It's the same thing. This is, this is why it's actually a care thing, a concern thing. This is not about just teaching the Bible a little bit here and there. This is a suffering thing, and we just care for our women. And, you know, it's, it's the same thing as being in bed with your wife or husband and that being an obvious thing for the husband to go. Because of how much suffering and watchmanship and overseership and absorbing spiritual danger like Christ did for the church, because it's so much a part of the job, it would be wrong for us to ask women uh, to, to do that. And so the overseers do, and they image Christ, the ultimate man, when they do that. In fact, guys, this, if, if, even if you still disagree at this point, uh, at least get this. This whole topic itself is really about Christ. In case I wasn't clear, this whole topic is about, and by, by that I mean we're not just making like metaphorical connections, but he actually is the substance, the reality behind these passages in the Bible. So like what I mean by that is in 1 Peter 2, 5, Jesus is the shepherd and the watchman over our souls. He actually is as the ultimate man. He is the ultimate pastor. He is the ultimate shepherd. He is the ultimate watchman or overseer. Clear, direct teaching, right? Connecting Christ to this office. All of us. He's that for all Christians. And then you guys remember in Matthew 26, hours before Jesus' arrest where he's praying he's sweating blood he's so anxious about his impending death he knows his coming and he says in matthew 26 to the disciples my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and here's the word oversee or watch with me and then remember a few verses later when he comes back what are they doing they're just passed out right they can't even stay awake and a little later he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and that's that's when he says could you not watch with me just for one lousy hour. Don't you know what's about to happen? This is the hour of darkness. 
You know, and so I, I share this to say that part of the gospel is that none of us are watchful. None of us oversee well. None of us are protective. None of us are good. None of us understand except Jesus. He oversees and watches over us. He takes shots all the way to the cross for us. And meanwhile, we're asleep, not doing anything to save ourselves whatsoever. This is, this is like the, the whole Bible in a couple of strange narrative verses, if you're brand new to the Bible. Christ was awake and prayerful and watchful when he saved you, and you were passed out. Like Abraham in Genesis 15, if you know that story, he's asleep when God covenants with him. We'll go back into that. People, we are asleep. We're not doing anything good, anything profitable or productive or watchful. This is not an example to follow. This is like, no, we haven't done anything at all to deserve salvation, but Christ has done it all. Grace. And so when, when after this, when he makes himself one with the church and fills, fills us with the Spirit, he calls some men into this role imperfectly, but still into it to image his continual care for his people and to further image Jesus' watchfulness over his church. So overseers are men who are moved by this gospel idea, humbled by it, motivated to love by it, and willing to die for it. And so a couple final things then here on um, the really, what I want to say in this last section is, is talk about the importance and primacy of this story. And this is actually, this would be like a, an ending to this sermon, but also an ending to the whole series. So it's kind of like two endings. Think about it that way. Like the last book of Revelation is kind of like, you know, an end to Revelation, but also an end to the whole Bible. It's, it's kind of like that. All right, so the importance and primacy of the story. This is a summary statement. This is our view here. This is why we care so much because we think the gospel is related to it. Masculine eldership helps us see Jesus' love for the church. To use Ephesians 5 imagery, overseers refer to Christ like husbands in a marriage context. Remember that um, Jesus did not die to abolish hierarchy in every sense of the word. Sinful forms, yes, but he came to die for our sins. That's the story. And that's what healthy forms of male overseership in church settings help to image. Again, having women do this for men, though there are like worse things in the world, I mean, technically speaking, because that could be an argument, aren't there worse things? I mean, again, I would say yes, technically, of course there are, but does that make this right? Because we would say it would not only be unloving and unsafe, but in extreme forms could even image the opposite of the gospel, and that would be the church dying for Christ. That's like in extreme forms. And I'm not saying that every time a, a woman's a pastor, that's what's being imaged, but in extreme forms, uh, it could be. It could be the wrong story. Even within a church that's otherwise kind of solid, um, it could be the wrong story where a church figure is pictured as taking bullets for uh, Christ figures, which is um, the antithesis, the opposite of the biblical story. So a couple things here about the gospel then. Um, and I forgot to... All right, well, I'll just keep this up here. All right. The gospel is not, so the gospel is not, this sort of relates to the idea, this is a cultural thing, so um, I know you guys have heard these before, but the gospel is not, nor is this in the Bible, you can do whatever you set your mind to, or if you try hard enough, you can achieve anything, or don't let anyone ever tell you you can't do anything, or 
Jesus came to abolish hierarchy in all its forms, or equality is the most important thing in the world. Um, I was listening to, talking to, about, to someone else about uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, who was talking about how the world is catechizing us all the time. If you know what catechism is, if you don't, don't worry about it. But just how, how it's preaching to us, how it's saying, it says these things over and over again. It shows them in movies. It's, all of the art that we celebrate sort of resembles it, right? And this is how we start to think because it's just in everything. We start to like pull back the front covers though a bit. You're like, and look deeper into it. You're like, whoa, this is actually not never in the Bible though, ever. It's not like it's like, you know, uh, every single, you know, nook and cranny or um, dot and tittle of these things is, is the opposite of Christianity. But it's like, sometimes these are the worst things. The things that are half true or sort of true sometimes, that's even more dangerous than things that are obviously wrong. The gospel is not those things. But if you think those top things are actually in the Bible, you're going to trip up on this notion of women being kept from eldership in the church. It won't make any sense because it contradicts what the culture is telling us, right? Don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything. Uh, well, how dare the Bible say this, right? Like, we'll actually start apologizing for Paul here rather than receiving this as a good thing for our churches because it shows the gospel. We'll trip up. It won't make sense. It won't fit with our narratives. And we'll just seek to explain it away and we'll apologize for it rather than receive them with gladness as God's good and, and holy word as if he actually knows what's best for us and we don't, which I know sounds like, well, of course, but, but it's easy for us not to live that way. What is the gospel? Here, marriage. Here, gender complementarity. Here, eldership in, in all this. This is what the Bible actually says. Jesus, God's son, the second Adam, the true husband, the overseer and pastor of our souls, shed his blood for his bride, the second Eve, the church. And in this, he loved us. He fended off danger for us. He suffered unimaginable pain for us, and he gave us the hope of eternal life. That's actually the gospel. And so men and women, elders and non-elders in the room, married and single in the room, what if that story right there, that gospel right there, became more important to us than personal ambition, preference, or even equality? What if that actually happened? I think by God's grace it, it is. Praise God. It's happening right here in this church. What if it happened even more? The story is not about us. It's about God. Our lives, our gender, our marriages, our churches, our governance structures, they're not about us. They're not God-given platforms for us to thrive and be worshipped and to ascend to some height where we get everything we ever dreamed of. But instead, our entire lives, sexuality and gender included, are, Colossians 1.16, for Jesus. Sexuality and gender are for the sake of Christ or telling his story in the world. And so really, if you like distill all of that, I mean, it's like, here's what eldership is about. And this is, I mean, even if at this point you're like, yeah, still not sold, all right. But here, here's what I'd say to you. Uh, here's an eldership, biblically, this is what the Bible is saying eldership's ultimately about. It's not really just a cold, rigid rule. It's, it's about a narrative, a story that's bigger than you and me. It's bigger than our preferences. It's about Christ, eldership is about Christ dying for your sins. And, and how he loves you to the uttermost. And it's a call to believe in him and to be saved. If you've ever seen one of the elders here in some way love you or 
care for you, whether it's, you know, really objective or something really personal or whatever. What God wants you to see in that is that's kind of like me. I'm, I'm like that man, but even better. And, and if we haven't, then that's sin and God's not like that. And that's something that's on us to confess and to work on. But in as much as we have, um, he wants the ultimate God-man, Jesus Christ, to be imaged in the church. Not just talked about, but seen. And uh, it just so happens that one of the chief ways he does this is to call some men into eldership for the sake of dying for the, the wife entity that is, and the bridal entity that is uh, the church. So believe in him and you'll be saved. It, it's like, you might think, wow, that's, that's kind of a jump. I hope you've seen that it's not. Uh, when you talk about eldership, you should be thinking about Christ. Uh, and so understand how he's overseen, watched for your souls, thwarted danger from you, died for your sins, took on demonic attack, went to hell for those six hours on the cross, all for you. That's the center of, of the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God loved you guys in that and me. Let's celebrate that and sing uh, together. So let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, thanks for today. Thanks for this uh, difficult, man, this is difficult stuff, but thank you that it's in the Bible. Uh, thank you that you talk about things that are deeply important to us as human beings. You know that because you came, became a human. You created us. You know how we think. You can empathize with us. Um, and it's also just important. You care about your church. It's not some random thing that people just decided to do 2,000 years ago and thought, oh, we're saved. I guess we should get together and talk. Like, gathering with Christians is part of the design. And there's a way that should be done uh, so that counter-gospels aren't imaged in churches, also marriages, of course, we talked about that, but like in church settings too. Uh, there, are, there is a right and a wrong. There's a gray area too. It's not like a one super specific thing. Um, it can look a little different here and there and culturally and all that. But God, thanks, uh, thanks for still giving us teaching on this and reminding us it's not just a rule. It's for the sake of the greater story that our story here, our physical story, is a whisper of is a shadow of. Uh, and so one day um, when we see Christ, it'll, it'll make sense. Yeah, this is why. This is why we had a shadow of that because now I'm seeing like the, the ultimate image of it and it kind of looked like back at Hiawatha when we saw this whole thing happen this way. And, but now it's even better. It's different. It's, but it's like kind of the same, but a glorified version of it. That's coming. And so it gets even better. And uh, we pray to help our church to be unified, loving, and learned in this area. Um, forgive us our sins. Thank you for dying for us and watching over our souls. Amen.